Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I'm talking with Kyla Scanlon. She is probably one of my favorite writers on the internet. I love uh, how you are synthesizing so many data points and information about psychology, ideas, work, uh, finance, the economy, all this. Um, And you're turning it into probably, like, I feel like you have the best ratio of, like, information per second on the internet. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good way to describe you, but... um, Great writing, great uh, short-form videos, um, all sorts of stuff. And you're like really at the beginning stages of building something really interesting, I think. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Kyla. I'm excited to dive in and talk about your journey and uh, so many things. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with growing up. Uh, So I know coming from Kentucky is a big thing for you. You went to a state school similar to me. I went to UConn. You went to Western Kentucky. Uh, Talk to me about growing up in Kentucky and sort of you as a child, like what were you thinking? Okay, I need to, what do I need to do to go be a successful person in the world? What what was that story growing up? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I really thought about it that much growing up. Like I just really loved reading. I wanted to be an astronaut all throughout, you know, middle school. And then I got to high school and was like, hmm, you know, I should start thinking about college and got a really good deal from Western Kentucky University. I was able to go there, not only on a full ride, but like it paid to go there, which was super cool. Um, and it was there that I sort of figured out like, oh, finance is really interesting and like understanding money is really important and what is money. So that was sort of my path is like, I've always really loved learning and finance for me, it seemed like an infinite learning group and something that not a lot of people understood and, and was sort of important to begin talking about. So that was kind of the path. Um, and Kentucky was good um, in general. Like, it's a beautiful state. So, yeah. What, uh, when did you first start writing and sharing ideas and connecting with others online? Uh, it looks like the farthest traces of you I could find on the internet were seek, Seeking Alpha contributions. <laughs> but... Uh, I know you also had uh, Scanlon on Stocks, which was an uh, early blog. Did Were there any other experiments early on that stand out? Yeah, so this isn't online, but I, started, I wrote my first book when I was eight. 
And it was about a little penguin. Um, it was called The Little Penguin. And so that was like my first uh, experience with writing. And I really loved it because I was a big reader, like I said. And so for me, it just made sense that if I was reading books, I'd start writing them. And so like that was my first big experience writing. And then when I was in college, I did start the Scanlon on Stocks blog, which is like so embarrassing <laughs> now to look back on like what it was saying. But I started that because in my community at school like there just wasn't a lot of people who were like thinking about markets the way I wanted to think about markets and like wasn't the sort of in-depth conversation that I was seeking um so into seeking alpha and started publishing my stuff there and it was like me and a bunch of you know 50 year old guys <laughs> uh which is it was a really good experience like they there was a lot of uh good feedback um but that was uh geez maybe 20 2017 so I've been doing this for a while <laughs> yeah what were some of the early questions where you were saying, I'm looking at this differently. Uh, I, I'm not really seeing others look at things this way. Um, what were those like initial hunches or questions you had? I don't know if it was ever like, I'm looking at things differently. It was just like, I want to look at things more. And so yeah. like a lot of my writing was a quest to find additional information and a quest to like, if I go and you know, go research Amazon stock. I'll go and figure out what Amazon's business is and I'll understand that more. So it was never like I have this big original thought. It was like, I don't understand the world around me. And the only way that I'm going to understand the world around me is through writing about it. That was how I processed. Yeah. It seemed going through school and the initial phases of work, there was almost this silent conspiracy to not go deeper. Like, People would say things like, whoa, why would we go more? Like, why why care, read books? Like, I would read books in consulting about, like, organizations, and I'd be finding these ideas. And, like, people would be like, eh, what, do, what are we really going to do with that? Um, talk to me about, like, how some of the work you're doing now has sort of opened you up to, oh, maybe people do want deeper ideas. Uh, did you find that when you first started posting online, too? Yeah, I mean, I talk about the Federal Reserve extensively, which is, you know, one of the most powerful institutions in the entire world. And it's also one of the most misunderstood and the most where people are like, I don't even know what the Fed is. Like, what is that? So for me, a lot of stuff to your point of like, oh, people don't want to go like, layer deeper. I oftentimes think that people just don't even have the toolkit to go layer deeper. Like if you don't know what you're looking for, like, how are you going to dig the hole? Right. Like if you don't even have a shovel. Uh, so I think that's sort of like what I try to do is be like, here's information, here's what's going on, here's how it's impacting your daily life. And that's what I try to do is is give people the toolkit that they need to understand the world around them. So Fast Company wrote an article about you is um, somebody that's sort of like, quote unquote, made it. And there was a phrase in there where, where I feel like they, um, I feel as like another creator that's seen a lot of people's paths, like, it doesn't really happen as they described it, which is like, oh, she was just like doing random stuff and then she like found her niche and like, boom, right? But like you were planting seeds uh, much earlier. Talk to me about like those early days. Like what were some of the things you were learning uh, from feedback from the 50-year-old the finance bros? Yeah. I mean, life was just like a constant feedback loop. It always is. But, like, I was just very, like, I was always trying to understand what was going on around me. Um, and so in terms of, like, the Fast Company interview and how they're like, oh, these things just sort of started happening. 
like when I was when I first made my first TikTok, I've been watching TikTok for a couple of months, like trying to understand what worked and what didn't. And also with the YouTube videos, I do the same thing with writing, like reading all these readers. And then with like the the feedback from investors, like, you know, I worked at an institution and I was really paying attention there, like how they talked about things, what they were talking about, um, and just trying to figure out like what resonated with people and where gaps seem to be. And so like that's kind of how I've approached everything is like where are the holes in the analysis and do I understand why the holes are there sort of thing. Yeah. What what did you think in terms of I think there's this legacy idea of you need to pay your dues, you need to work in an institution to like have the right to speak. Um, did you start learning the opposite lesson through writing or did you still sort of have that um, frame as you were approaching graduation and looking for a job? I don't know what I was doing. In college. <laughs> like I was so confident <laughs> my senior year because I it was like valedictorian and it was like started this club and had helped pick out our new deal. So like I was like, I'm untouchable. <laughs> and so it wasn't until I started interviewing for the jobs that I realized that there's still a lot of like bureaucratic and legacy institutions in place who maybe don't want somebody from Western Kentucky University for better or for worse. And so the way I got into my institutional job to get that, you know, pedigree was through a blind resume. So somebody taking a chance on me. Um, and that's that was like a big wake up call where it's like, oh, <laughs> um, things are not going to be that easy. You know, like it's not going to be as smooth sailing as it was in college. Like I'm going to have to network and I'm going to have to be more than just, you know, somebody who's good at taking tests. Yeah, that's I always wonder, like having easy access to the opportunities kind of like limits our creativity and like how we hack our careers. I think a lot of my path was like trying to break into consulting and I talked to somebody in college and he was like well you can't work in consulting from a school like yours so your best bet is to go to the right schools for grad school and then we can hire you and that just made me want to find like any way in possible and then I eventually did but it also made me look at things different which is that like I can't rely on just having like access to a company. Like I need to take ownership of my own path and like keep moving, keep experimenting. Um, is that sort of the sense you had after dealing with some of the rejection and breaking in um, to one of these firms? Yeah, I mean, I I just really wanted like a job. Um, yeah. And so for me, it was like, I need to get a job and then I'll like sort of figure everything out. Um, and so I got like, a really cool job in LA working for, you know, a pretty big institution and was in their top program there. And so it wasn't until I got there that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not like, it's such, it was a great job. It's great for some people, but it wasn't for me. And so I think to your point of like, um, you know, figuring out what works versus what doesn't and going after the path at any cost. Sometimes once you're on the path, you're like, oh, no, <laughs> time to like turn the truck around sort of thing. So what what were some of the things that uh, were tough for you there? I, at a lot of firms, and I'm sure you experienced this in consulting, like probably to a higher degree, uh, there's a copy paste model. Like they kind of want you to think a certain way, they, which makes sense. Um, they want you to do things a certain way. There's like their way of doing things. And for me, I just wasn't um, maybe as... Uh, focused on that. I wanted to do things in a different way. I wanted to focus on new things. And I also really love doing my own thing. 
And when you're at an institution, you work for them. And so for me, like that was super tough to reconcile where it's like, well, I want to go explore this big idea right now. I think this is important and cool. And uh, for them, they're like, no, well, you know, we didn't hire you for that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I lucked out uh, in consulting. My first consulting job was as a research analyst at McKinsey. And I think the bar of excellence was so much further beyond what I had done before that I loved being challenged in that hard way. And also, like, I worked on such a range of projects that I was able to, like, keep learning um, stuff. And I was able to, I think, I had this deep, like, synthesizing mind. I love collecting ideas and making sense of them. So I was able to, like, do that. It was, but then, like, once I got good at, like, the synthesizing, it was, like, me caring about all the things that I, like, couldn't care about. And that's when it was hard for me and eventually took my own path. Um, but want to talk about your leap. You DM'd me at the beginning of the pandemic and were like, should I leave my job? It was a very, like, um, just simple thing and I was like well like I'm starting to think like maybe it's worth it to like stay in the corporate world a few years um, build some cash and things like that I think you left like a week later and <laughs> I, th- I think I like in your specific case like you should have been like running towards uh, quitting your job uh, what what was that process like for you how how early were you starting to think about it like for me it was you know, a couple months. So I graduated school and then literally the pandemic happened a couple yeah. months later. So I never really got like a big corporate experience. So for me, like I had a lot of reflection time during the pandemic was working this job. And I was like, geez, like life is so short. What am I doing? And that was like a big leap for me where I was like, I really want to do this. And also I really wanted to focus on financial education. And there just wasn't an opportunity for me to do that at the firm that I worked at, which is fine. Um, so I, I was like, I got to take this jump. And it was so scary. I remember riding my bike to the gym. I used to bike, I bike to the gym. And I remember riding my bike to the gym and being like, I cannot believe I'm leaving this incredible, amazing job that I don't even know if I should be here. And I had so much like imposter syndrome and I had so much worry about it. But I'm really glad I, I did it. But, you know, no safety net. I just was like, sure. <laughs> um, so it was it was thought out, but it was also terrifying, you know. So what I found is like a lot of people, um, people that are like, okay, there are downsides to taking this leap. Don't take the leap. But if they're like, there are downsides, yes, but they're also like, I have these clues from experiments I've done that there might be something worth finding. There might be these exciting upsides. What were those things for you if you had them? Well, when I was doing, I did like a pro-con list. And when I was doing that, a lot of it was around I should take a leap. I can take a leap. Why wouldn't I try this out? And it was a lot of regret minimization. So I was like, uh, "If will I regret not doing this? And the answer was always yes. And so for me, I do think I have like more risk tolerance or yeah, more risk tolerance like baked into my identity. I'm just used to taking risks. But I also think for me, it was like, I, I have to see, I have, because if I, live this life without ever knowing like what I could have done, I would be very sad. <laughs> and so I was like, I just want to prevent me being sad about that. And being sad about that was more powerful to me than being sad about, you know, t- leaving that job. Yeah. And you had some proof that like the content you were creating was getting traction, right? Um, a little bit. Yeah. Like I had the blog, 
And I also, like, I was trying to blog the whole time I was at my company, but I had the blog about non-finance things, and I so I, I still had the, the blog, and I kind of realized then, like, if I care this much about, like, blogging and, like, writing about finance online, like, I should probably go that path, too. Um, but I had a little bit of proof of concept, but nothing to where it was like, this is going to work versus won't work. Like, things were going okay, but it, it, there wasn't, like, a solid business plan in place. Yeah. Did you have any path role models of people that were like, okay, they made it. Uh, I could potentially steal some moves from their path. Um, I, do you know Cody Ko? He's a YouTuber. Cody Ko, no. Okay, so he's a YouTuber. And he was like a Vine star. And he's a content creator. He makes silly videos. But he was kind of a person where it's like, okay, like if he can make videos, I can make videos. And then... All the other stuff sort of happened after that too. But I was, yeah. So I think it's very common for people like around, you know, in the younger generation to be like, okay, like I, this path of doing your own thing makes sense. Like other people have done it successfully. So I had a lot of quote unquote role models to look out to and Cody was one of them. Yeah. As an, as an elder millennial, I would say <laughs> that sentiment is not uh, shared yeah. among my cohort. Um what what is like what is the vibes of like how you should be orienting towards work um in your age cohort like what are your friends doing like the pandemic really threw your um sort of mini cohort off track i think it's interesting right now because you have like the whole quiet quitting thing where people are like i'm just going to do the job i was hired for and that became like a big phenomenon where people are like oh my gosh they're not you know working themselves to the bone so I think there's a desire to have a lot of work-life balance and to not make work your entire identity. So that's what I've noticed with a lot of my friends is they want to be able to like, you know, have a life outside of a corporation. And I think a lot of that stems from people bouncing around jobs. Like people are, you know, don't have the same job for 40 years like they used to. And you also can't rely on your job like you used to for, you know, pension plan, all that stuff. So like even... Our relationship with work has changed because our relationship with companies has changed, you know? Yeah. What What did your parents say when you were thinking about leaving? Um, <laughs> uh, they were they were supportive. I think they were a little nervous um, because, like, the job I had was, was very good. The company was very good. It was very well taken care of. Um, so I think there was a lot of, like, why are you doing this? And also, I had moved from Kentucky to Los Angeles I'd never been to LA before. And so it had been a really um, personally trying time to like move all the way across the country for this job. And now I was like, I'm going to leave. <laughs> and so I think there was a little bit of like, what's going on in terms of the actual job itself? And then in terms of, you know, the, the steps I had taken to actually, you know, get this job too. They're like, are you sure? But um, they trust me. So they, they were supportive in their own way. Yeah. Did you have any pushback or skepticism from other people in your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was somebody at my previous firm who was like, you're not going to, like, you're not going to make it. Um, <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. They said that like, literally? Yeah. And I was like, you know, maybe. <laughs> who knows? Uh, so, it's like, thank you for the free inspiration. I'm now yeah, going to use this and harness this. Um, yeah. It's it definitely something that I was like, got to prove them wrong. <laughs> sort of out of spite. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, a couple of my friends were like, what are you doing, dude? And I was like, I got to. Uh, yeah. I love it. I am so inspired by 
when people like you take these leaps and really bet on themselves. I I think it's one of the most courageous um, things you can do in this world. And like, I wish I had left earlier. And I also sort of write about and realize like why it is so hard. Um, but I'm sort of waking up to the fact that, oh my gosh, we have so much like prosperity and comfort in the modern world. And like, people are like, yeah, I, I just can't leave a six-figure job. It's so terrifying, right? But like, I'm, I'm trying to highlight the, the upsides um, of this kind of path. What are some of the biggest surprises in terms of the positive things? I think it, so I think like, you know, taking a bet on yourself, like that's a good way to frame it because you do have to spend a lot of time alone <laughs> and like a lot of time reflecting on how you interact with the world. So I think it really challenges you as an individual to understand yourself at a really deep level that maybe you don't get to do at a corporation because you have to understand like all these different intricacies. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, and then I also think like the creative freedom is is really powerful. Um, being able to explore different ideas and do different things, and, like try different projects and see what resonates and what doesn't. And the experimentation value of doing this is is wild. And if things don't work, like it, you know, it sucks, but you can just sort of go back to square one and try again. So I think that like the creative freedom and the experimentation is, can't even price it out, you know, it's just invaluable. Uh, I feel that so much. Like, yeah, yeah just, people have a hard time understanding this. Like if you don't care about this, you don't care about this, right? right. But if you do care about the creative uh, freedom, um, the cost of like having somebody like dumb down your ideas at work can be so soul crushing. <laughs> Been there, done that. But um, I love that. And I, I want to use this to shift to another thing you write about, which is sort of related to something I've been diving into, which is what you're calling the passion crisis. And I feel like when I'm re reading your writing around this, this is when you're at your most poetic and <laughs> like, you're really just like channeling something so powerful. So what you define as the passion crisis is many of our youth have no idea what they really care about, right? Our passion crisis is broadly a function of tapping into the uncomfortable parts of ourselves. In order to find out what you love, you have to be vulnerable. You have to care. And caring itself is an act of rebellion in a world that seems to constantly want to put you down. How is like doing what you care about an act of rebellion in today's world? I think caring is an act of rebellion. Um, there's a lot of nihilism out there, and rightly so, um, where if you show, so caring involves vulnerability, right? Like they're, you know, two sides of the same coin. And I think that if you show vulnerability, that gives people a place to poke at. It gives people, you know, something that they can use against you. But I think caring is an act of rebellion because you just don't, you don't see it a whole lot, and it, partially because of that, like the, the 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 fact that the other people can use it against you, and just because it is scary. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it was the first couple of years of my path. I really hedged because I was terrified um, yeah, okay. of actually saying I cared, and because the. Uh, what goes with that is like a vulnerability, right? And people might make fun of me. People might say bad things. And the thing you learn eventually once you create enough online and share ideas is that people do make fun of you. 
All and the time. Uh, they insult you and they say you're an idiot and they say you're wrong. Um, is it still worth it? Like, I'm sure you face more criticism than me. Oh, yeah. Those are peanut gallery people. They don't, their <laughs> opinions aren't that important. So, I mean, I've really struggled with negative comments um, because people are really mean um, and they're weird. So, <laughs> like, that's been a big part of <clears throat> overcoming that, like, Self-doubt is understanding that, like, not everything that everyone says is important, you know? Yeah. How do you sense that, like, more people should just, like, quit their jobs and try, like, my idea is, like, everyone should try, like, a freelance year in their life where they take a year and just, like, try to make money on their own. I sense that just, like, doing many more experiments and having the responsibility of your life is sort of the path to figuring out what you care about, whereas, like, I think you like sort of pan this whole idea of like a passion economy, right? I'm I'm sort of skeptical yeah. of that idea too, which I think starts more with like, okay, you have something you're interested in, build a career around that. I'm not sure that works. Um, I've tried to shift people's framing around this instead of like, don't find a niche, find a mode. And what mm -hmm. I mean by find a mode is like find a mode of creation, a way of showing up in the world such that you can continue to show up in that mode. Um, how do you think about, like, how do you actually find things you can care about? Yeah, I think that's hard, too. And I think a lot of people struggle with that because it, it's either that they're told that the things that they care about don't matter. Like, if they're really into, like, Russian literature, like, people are like, that's not going to make you money. And so you start not caring about it as deeply or it becomes something that's on the back burner. But I also agree with you that to to an extent, um, you can't have your passions be your job because at that point you lose them to a certain extent because it becomes something that you oftentimes have to monetize and you just lose the underlying love when, unfortunately, when, I think when money enters the equation. So I think the that's one of the things I'm really worried about. And I don't quite know how to solve it is like people don't know what they care about partially because we're told that we can't care about certain things because it's not capitalism friendly um, or because they don't know how to explore deeply. Like we're not encouraged to be curious. Yeah, our our perception of like what is possible is so intertwined with the economy and like our ideas of what we think we can do is downstream of like what has already been done. But things are changing so much and like we're shifting to this like probabilistic world. Like how, how do you think like the psychology of like, you even said it like with your cohort of friends, like more people are seeing more ways of thinking about their path. But how do you think like that loop changes? Like we still have all these institutions that are led by people who grew up with the ideas that like you need to do things a certain way, you need to follow a path, you need to put in your time versus like, honestly, the person I go to to think about finance is you. Yay. You're, you're, but like, there's still this old world of like, yeah, she's, she didn't pay her dues, she doesn't have the right credentials, all this, like they're missing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they'll continue to think that way probably, um, and they're loud about it. Uh, but I think <laughs> that there was um, a good research paper that I saw this morning that was talking about how society moves faster than people. 
So I think a lot of what you're talking about will just be the aging out, no offense to the boomers, but <laughs> and aging out of the boomers. Or the who silence. Are, or the silence, yeah, all <laughs> of them, where they are very stuck in traditional ways because that's what's worked for them, and they're not very interested in exploring other models. So I think that's going to be what has to happen um, because you can glean so much more value from people who are able to explain things in a different way than uh, being very confusing, um, which I think there's a lot of like gatekeeping in the way that we talk about certain types of information now, intentional gatekeeping. Yeah, so you're, what I said at the beginning is you have the most information per second on the internet. And I, what I'm referring to is your vertical videos. How, how do you think about like condensing and synthesizing information uh, in that format? Was that something you were inspired by other people doing tangential things or how did that evolve and start? And so that was mostly trial and error. Um, if you go back to like my very first uh, vertical videos, TikToks, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts, I, I, it's clear I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, so I've really tried to use all aspects of the multimedia. So having pictures, having text, having audio, having clips if needed. So like with video, it's so powerful because you can have facial expressions, you can have the pictures, you can have the text. And so that enables me to say things even quicker because I am talking at people from like three different angles because of that. So that's kind of how I think about it is I try to have the most condensed script possible. I edit out all the times I breathe, <laughs> like it's, it's tight. And, uh, then also having the multimedia aspect to it too. Yeah. Do you, do you enjoy creating that stuff? Yeah, I do. I never thought I would like video editing, um, but it's actually really fun. And I also think not a lot of, not, not enough people make art about finance. And I don't think all my vertical videos are art. Like some of them are just news updates. But I do think there's a lot of room to not be like a finance meme page. I don't think that's art. No offense to those guys. But I think like just creating pieces, like almost satire, comedy, um, other things like that around finance, because that is also how people learn. You know, like that's a great way to get education across is through comedy. So that's how I also think about it is um, that style of editing too. Yeah. Yeah. What What does that look like? Like what is what is art uh, in the in this <laughs> format or space too? What is art? Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> deep deep question. This is a big question. So I think it's just a different way of talking about stuff and like bringing a creative flair to it. So, like, the video I'm thinking of is one that I did for the Federal Reserve when they had their meeting last, where I was, like, pretending to be a hiker and talking about hiking and the economy at the same time. So I think it's, like, tying together these, you know, seemingly disparate threads, giving a creative flair to it, allowing the story to unfold within the video, and, like, you know, hopefully having people chuckle and learn something. So that's kind of art. Yeah, I sense a deep, like, poetic inspiration in you. I want, I want to read the the second part of your passion crisis. You're talking about, and it's beautiful to care, but man, it can be difficult. The act of being engaged in the world outside of having art that is really your soul on a canvas, or perhaps in a song, or maybe it's a car that you've been fixing up 
Or maybe it's a little plant in the windowsill. Caring at any level is so deep, so raw, it was actually the original money. This is like a perfect sentence in my <laughs> mind. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank um, you. Wh- wait, what are your inspirations? Like you said you read a lot as a kid, but like oh, where, yeah. where does this come from? Oh, I mean, I just, again, I read a lot. I read a lot. Like when I say that, I'm not joking. Like, uh, my my ritual with my mom was to go to the library every week and I could get 10 books. And so I I did that for, you know, from the time I was probably like six years old until I was in my teenage years. So 10 plus years of reading, you know, 10 books a week. So a lot of that was that. And then I also really love poetry, like really love philosophy. Um, so that shaped a lot of like my recent writings is like reading poems um, and then reading philosophy too. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Have you discovered yeah. David White yet? Um, uh, what does he write? He, so he's like a poet who writes about work. Oh, uh, maybe. And I'm thinking of David Sedaris, but those are two different guys. V- very different, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, I haven't da- read David. David White is like a uh, British or Scottish poet who used to like be a naturalist and writes now. Um, but yeah, both, both good writers. Yeah. Yeah. But different writers, right? Like that's also a cool thing about writing is like, you can write in all these different ways. And that's something I've gotten actually criticized for is how casual my writing style is about the economy. Cause people are like, this is not academic. A fifth grader could have written this. And it's like, that's the goal, you know, that's the goal. So people understand it. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like you've invented like your own sort of format where you're just like, okay, additional thoughts. I'll just throw some sub bullets and bullets here. Like, did you steal that from somebody else or did you just sort of uh, create that? Yeah, I write how I think. So the bullets are my brain like taking pauses. Also, like how my thoughts look in my head is text. So I just sort of, it already has bullet points in my brain, if that makes sense. So that's, it's just, it's literally just my brain. Yeah. Yeah, is text the thing you're most fired up about in the next uh, 10 years? 10 years. Uh, I don't know. I think, like, there's a lot of weird stuff happening with the AI models and, like, what they're doing. I don't know how that's going to impact, you know, the writing space. Uh, (laughs) We're all waiting. We have no idea. It's kind of crazy. But, you know, there's this video of Elvis Presley, like, going on America's Got Talent or something. Like, it was a deep fake of him. And, like, you can still tell it's not quite real. And I feel like that's how AI writing will also feel. Like, I do think really good writers, you can sense the humanity behind them. So hopefully that'll remain a variable that cannot be touched. Yeah, I was playing around with Lex, and it did a really good job of, like, quickly generating stuff that was, like, passable and mediocre, um, which is probably better than 70% of people's writing, right? Um, but I have like years of reps and different moves and different, like you, you develop like your own like shticks, right. Of like, this is the thing I talk about. Like AI is not going to generate that. But at the same time, I'm also wondering like this stuff will just exponentially get better. Right. So at, at some point we'll have enough training data to like, there's nothing theoretically stopping AI from generating a TikTok video equivalent to like what you've been creating, right? Yeah. And, but at the same time, it's almost like, I feel like it's kind of like, um, 
what is it called? Um, uh, having like um, it, sense of agency. I'm mi- I'm missing the phrase, but um, oh, free will, right? It's like it's better just to pretend like we have free will. <laughs> Because yeah. if if we didn't, you're just gonna be like helpless. It's better to pretend that like the humans are going to continue to evolve and create interesting stuff than pretend AI is just gonna take everything over. Yeah, I don't know. I, like, I think there's, I think that, like, they have AI influencers who are like, you know, computer generated images and like they have millions of followers. But I also think like people crave humanity in a way that. I don't even think people know that they crave it. Like, we're communal creatures at heart. So I think, like, we can interact with this AI stuff, but there will always be, like, a, you know, a slightly metal taste in your mouth after you do that kind of stuff. Like, I do think we're that discerning. I could be totally wrong. <laughs> uh, hopefully not, but I do think, like, there's still going to be a space. Hopefully there's still going to be a space for humans. If we have an AI, like, Wally kind of world where we're just, like, scooting around on scooters and watching screens, that would be terrible. Yeah. What's the, what's your balance between being in creative mode and disconnecting? Uh, one thing we share in common is a love of bike riding. Like yeah. bike riding is one of my cheat modes. Like that's how I write is I go for bike rides. Yeah. Um, how do you think about the balance between like doing and non-doing? Oh, this is, what kind of bike do you have? I'd, I'd use the bike share rental. I, oh, I cool. need to get a bike. So maybe I'll have to ask you for yeah. Advice. Well, I have a can uh, I've been nomadic for like four years, so I just <laughs> haven't turn, bought yeah. one yet. <laughs> well, yeah. So I was like, I'm still slightly, you know, all over the place, like in terms of living and traveling. But I got, I used to have a felt bike and now I have a Cannondale um, because I crashed my felt. And so once I got my Cannondale, like a whole new creative outlet opened up because that is a huge wow. unlock for me. Like when I don't, if you're familiar with my Vibe Session piece, like that was essentially crafted on my bike. Like I was, I biked to and from the gym. And um, I was just, I think about things because all you really do is like pedal and, you know, make sure you don't get hit by a car. But there's so much like fluidity to that movement that the way I think about it is like you get your gears going in your brain as you're pumping. So biking is a huge, um, to answer your question, a huge balance for me. Um, I really love like being active, um, that kind of stuff. I am actively working on learning how to take a break. I think that's something that's really hard when you do your own thing and especially like, you know, a creative thing uh, because you do end up becoming your content to a certain extent. So I, I'm still figuring that out, but biking is, is huge. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. We got to get Cannondale. You should be sponsoring. Uh, Kyla is a free. professional athlete. I think creating online is uh, a sport. Um, it is really intense, requires training. You should yeah. sponsor her, I think. Wow. Shout out to Cannondale. Well, one thing I was thinking about, or one thing my friend mentioned to me once, he was like, you should do your TikToks, but like on the bike. So like stick the phone on the bike safely and like talk, yes. just talk about the economy. And I was like, that's actually so fun because I love watching this point of view videos where people have like a GoPro on their helmet and they're just like, boop, boop. Like, I feel like that with the economy would be super fun. <laughs> so Yes, this has to happen. Uh, <laughs> do you get do you get the moments though when you're like so flooded by like so many good ideas that you need to like pull over and start jotting it down or you, do you just sort of trust the good ideas will stick around? I make up an acronym so I remember them. So like if it like for Vibe Session, like that, yeah, I just remembered that word um, and then sort of everything else came after it. 
Um, so, but if I have to remember like a key phrase that I want to sort of write about moving on, I'll just come up with an acronym for it. Yeah, my brain. What were the dots of Vibe Session? Like what dots did you connect? Well, that was actually like a couple of weeks of work um, in a way that I hadn't realized until I was writing the piece because I had been publishing TikToks because GDP came in negative. And so everyone was like, oh, we're in a recession. And they made this TikTok being like, we're not in a recession. Like, we're, we're not. That's not the definition of a recession. And I was getting yelled at and people were like, but we need a recession. And I was like, <laughs> what the heck is going on? And so I wrote this piece called Do We Need a Recession? And I got more feedback based off that piece. And I was like, man, the vibes are off. And so like, that was kind of the whole connection is like the economic data is okay, but people are feeling terrible. Like that, we're not in a recession, we're in a vibe session. And uh, yeah, I got mixed reviews, but it was a fun piece to write. So. Yeah, it sort of ties to this idea. I mean, um, what's his name? He has this idea of reflexivity. Oh, George Soros? Uh, yeah. Yeah, George Soros' idea. Means, yeah. It's, yeah, it's he has common. this idea of reflexivity yeah. of like basically our emotions influence the market and the market changes and then you have this loop, right? Um, and it seems we're in an age where like more people are becoming more aware that like this basically like finance and the economy is like highly psychological. Um, but then like more people are aware of that and like using that information to like try and influence things like we seem to be like in an arms race of like trying to shape how the economy goes, basically on vibes. Like, what does that? What does this look like? Like, it's totally yeah. different than like your grandparents' economy they grew up in. Yeah, well, it's all social media, uh, which is funny, and markets too. So, markets, you know, are sort of dictating to a certain extent what the Fed does. So, if markets are like, oh, the Fed is going to slow down. They're going to pivot. The Fed is aware that markets are thinking that. So the Fed has to position with the knowledge that markets might know what the Fed is going to do. So it's like really all these like almost like third, second derivative things that are happening because of the way that information is disseminated and also because of how people are feeling. Because like consumer spending is, you know, 70% of the economy and consumer sentiment drives consumer spending. So like everything does boil back down to consumers and consumers impact the market to a certain degree, and the market impacts, or the economy impacts the market, and then, yeah, so it's, like, all connected, you know? <laughs> yeah. I sense you have uh, quite a bit of power and influence. Um, like, yeah, I mean, you could easily go down the road. I, I don't think you want to take this path of, like, hyping stocks, right, and then profiting oh. off that. Like, there are plenty of people like that doing that on the internet. Obviously, you would not do that because you care. And you're playing long games. Um, but you're, like, your stuff has enormous reach um, and is continuing to grow. Like, at a certain point, like, will you be responsible for, like, nudging up GDP at some point? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. It, it's funny that you say that. Um, Nick from the Wall Street Journal is sort of, like, this unofficial spokesperson for the Federal Reserve. Uh, like he hinted at they're going to slow down in December. Um, so I, I don't know if that'll ever be me. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. But um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think yeah. Oh, one thing I've, um, I think like with my book, it's been really interesting to see like how powerful an effect my story has had on other people. And people are emailing me and saying like, yep, your book, totally convinced me I need to quit my job. And I'm like, oh no, I need to like 
Oh, I need to like create a foundation of like safety nets for people, um, this, uh, responsibility, but, um, I do try to write with care and qualify things, but yeah, you can never really control what people are going to do with information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you, who's your favorite, uh, financial, um, leader? Is Jerome Powell? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, all the, Oh, that's a tough one. Um, favorite implies always spiking. Uh, I think that I love the Federal Reserve. Like, I get called a Fed simp all the time. Um, but I, I'm a little frustrated with them. And they're doing what they can with what they have. But, like, monetary policy is not enough to fix the inflation that we have. So I would say yes. Like, to, like if I ever met Jerome Powell, I'd be like, oh, my gosh. Like, oh, I can't love you. Um <laughs> I actually got to interview Mary Daly, who is the CEO and I president. Yeah. And I, when I got in that initial call with them, they were like, oh, we're a huge fan of your work. And I was like, stop. <laughs> I was like, well, you're not. Um, so, yeah, it's always really cool. But yeah, Jerome Powell was great. Yeah. Say, say more about that. You're not a fan of what the Fed is doing. I, I sense a lot of it is just like 20th century mindset and toolkit for yeah. like a 21st century world. Well, so, like, the Fed is technically responsible for fixing, like, 50% of the inflation that we have because 50% of the inflation that we have is demand, right? Like, it's outside demand. It's full of demand from the pandemic being locked inside. The other 50% is supply-side issues, and that's fiscal policy. And so the Fed is essentially, like, just hammering the economy, like, hey, everybody, just stop spending money, stop spending money so the supply side can catch up. But I and I and a lot of other people are, like, well, you know, it probably makes a little bit more sense to approach this sort of fiscal policy angle where you're actually fixing the underlying problems versus just like forcing things downwards. So that's my frustration. It's not something the Fed has any control over, but it's yeah. just like we have to have a deeper approach to inflation. But of course, like politics gets in there and, and it's never that easy. Yeah. Do you do you buy the idea that a lot of this is excess uh, savings and income from like upper income people who basically just like won't take the cues and stop spending. Uh, I mean, maybe to a certain extent, like luxury companies are doing pretty well still. So there's still a lot of spending power at the upper echelons and, you know, lower income consumers are not doing well. So there's definitely increased bifurcation there, uh, that is really difficult. But I think a lot of the inflation that we have is, um, from broken supply chains, from, price gouging, uh, that sort of stuff. So it, it's more nuanced than just like people spend money. But the, that's how the Fed has to fix it. Yeah. And I sense more broadly, there's sort of like different reality tunnels people are living in. <laughs> like I was sort of joking the other day about like, okay, if if you're like a retired boomer with a pension uh, that just gets a massive raise in your your Social Security as well because it's adjusted for inflation um, and you have a pension, like you're sort of protected from super downside. So like you might as well just keep spending, right? You might have a 2% mortgage, you might have paid off your home and you're just sort of like collecting assets versus like a Gen Z who is like looking at an 8% mortgage rate and like, shit, I may never have a home, the job, like there are no stable careers, there's no pensions, Um, all this, like what does an economy look like when you have basically people living in different realities? It's tough, yeah, and like the Fed's tool is pretty blunt. Uh, 
And right, yeah, it's destroyed, not destroyed, but it's really impacted the housing market and it's created, I think, a lot of financial nihilism with the younger generation. Um, and it's really tough because boomers and older generations, you know, 32 million people have no mortgage, so they're not going to feel any impact from mortgage rates. They have more spending power because they've been working for 40 years. So it, it it's an unequal playing field. Yeah. Yeah. How have the vibes of your path changed over time? If you had to say like the vibes of like your path at the beginning and like how it's evolved, how would you describe it? Um, yeah, I think at the beginning, I was really scared and nervous and didn't know what was going to work versus what didn't. Um, and just like, I was just focused on doing TikTok. And uh, since then, it's like really become sort of a little machine. I'm still a team of one person, which is, it can be a little tough sometimes. But, um, you know, now I have the YouTube channel and the Substack and the TikTok and Instagram Reels and the YouTube Shorts, and I get to do interviews and do speaking engagements. So for whatever reason, uh, people are taking me more seriously, I think, than they used to, which is really nice. It's still an uphill battle in, in some aspects of that. But like the opportunities that I've gotten, um, I think are like the vibes of those are something I couldn't even have, have dreamed of um, a year ago, you know. Yeah. How, how has, uh, how have you thought differently about making money from like the beginning to like how you're thinking about making money now? So I'm like one of the worst monetizers in the world. Uh, I'm, I'm really bad at this too. Like I wait till like the world is like giving me money and I'm like, oh, I'm yeah. so dumb. I should have done this oh. before. Yeah, um, I, I do it through brand deals right now. Or Well, I shouldn't say brand deals, working with companies. So I have different partnerships that um, I make videos for them and they distribute that on their platform. That's my primary mode right now. I have the Substack, which is sort of like a buy me a coffee model, and people are so generous there. And then I make money from YouTube as well. So those are all the different tasks. Yeah, I got to figure it out a bit more. <laughs> yeah, I, I do sense there is upside in sort of putting off monetizing things too early because uh -huh. it gives you more room to experiment. And Chris, Chris Abdelmessa, who I know uh, you follow as well, guy. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Shout out, Chris, if you're listening. Shout out, Chris. Um, but he planted this idea in my head, which I can't like unhear. Um, you might have heard it in the podcast we did, which was sort of just riffing. But it's like the future options of a path like ours are unknown to us, right? Dwayne Reed didn't know they were a real estate company until the value of real estate became more valuable than being a retail company, right? Similar to like McDonald's becoming a real estate company. Um, so it's sort of like my conception. This also could be like partial cope of like, I'm not making tons of money for my path, but like really like I think so important is basically just staying in the game. <laughs> that seems to be like 90% of it. Um, once you have like a curiosity rabbit hole that you can explore and like I've sort of proven that to myself, it seems like you could probably go with finance for the rest of your life. Um, does that feel similar to you and how you're thinking about it? Yeah, like you don't know what's out there until you know kind of thing. Or it may not even exist yet, right? Well, like a lot of people are doing cohort-based courses now. Yeah. When I started my path in 2017, that wasn't like common knowledge yet, right? But then you see people do different things and you're like, oh, I could do that, right? Um, 
the ecosystem now is so much better than it was like when I started in 2017. There was no like Twitter scene. People <laughs> were just posting like dumb, dumb comments on Twitter. There were no threads. Um, and, but now it's like you can sort of go online and see like a hundred different ways to make money and things like that. Yeah, no, totally. That, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, the ecosystem revolves for sure. Yeah, and who have been some of the uh, biggest supporters that have really um, encouraged you and helped you kind of maintain the course and stay on your path? Chris has been really supportive, actually. Um, he's, he's amazing. Yeah, he's been really great and like have been able to bounce ideas off him. There's a bunch of people on Twitter who just, you know, are there and like are checking in and stuff. Um, so like it's really too many names to even list. Uh, I'm really lucky. Yeah. What What have you learned about putting yourself out there? It's scary, but you have to do it. I, I had to do it. I don't think it's for everybody. Like I don't yeah. think everybody in the world has to make videos or has to, you know, have a fun cast. But I think if you got something to say, you know, you should say it. And uh, that's sort of what I've what I've learned. And I've also really spent a lot of time um, understanding my perception of myself. Because you if you're if you get really involved with like how other people are perceiving you, you forget who you are. So if, if that's I think a big thing um with that. Yeah. Yeah. How did it feel getting some of the big features in different magazines? I struggle a lot with imposter syndrome. Uh, so it was weird. It, like, so and unbelievably amazing. But I was like, me? Like, or do you have a Kyle? You know? Uh, and it, it, like, for me, I think, and maybe you relate to this, like, you get so deep in the day to day that you don't think about the impact. Like, even. When you're talking, when he said 10 years from now, he's like, I can't even think 10 days from now. Like, what I'm the same, on? so I shouldn't have yeah. asked that. No, no, it's okay. But um, you have to think about it to a certain degree. But I think that's a big thing is like, you're just like, okay, I have to execute. I have to get this video. And I, I like to, right after this conversation, I have to edit a video. Then I have to film a video. Then I have to edit that video. Then I have to write. So you just get really involved in the execution. And so, but like, like some of the comments that people have left, I feel like I've been focused on like negative stuff and this will relate back to the features. Like people are like, oh, Kyla, like I've learned so much about the economy from you. Like you've really done an amazing job, like helping me understand the world around me. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. Um, you know, features, no features, whatever, is that people are understanding the economy a little bit better. So that's how I think about it. It's like, you know, it's it's amazing the impact that it, it seems to be having. So yeah, yeah. it is. It's a weird disconnect. I've had a couple people um, sort of treat me like some sort of like famous person when uh. they were like, oh, I read your book. Like, oh my God, you're this, you're Paul. I can't believe I'm meeting you. And it's like, it's like, like you, like I'm mostly doing everything myself. And then I'm like going to do like podcast show notes and like grinding on audio editing or something. Pain. <laughs> and Pain. so like it's just... It's this weird disconnect, but I really like that kind of stuff and like the combination of the things I'm doing, I enjoy. But yeah, it's um, also I just want to say like I find your stuff absolutely delightful as a fellow like infovore. I'm like, I wish there was like a slow mo, like a charts version of your things. I'm like, oh my God, I want to see that chart. I'm like trying yeah. to hold and then like. Oh, I should do a better job about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, just 
just keep doing what you, what you want to do. But uh, yeah, I, I bet people would pay for like a um, like a download of the charts or something. You could oh, probably really? like figure out some like charts of the day. Yeah. Something. I really wanted to get more into like long, ooh, longer daily content. Um, so I'm trying to figure out like how to, how to do that. So maybe it'll be something like that. Yeah. Because there are so many good charts out there, you know. Yeah, what? How do you think about like the cadence um, and pace of your stuff? Has that mostly just been like trial and error of what works, or like do you have something of philosophy you're thinking about? So actually, kind of circle back to an earlier point in our conversation. Uh, I write them as poems. So <laughs> they're actually uh, structured as poems. This is this <laughs> is the, this is amazing. Do people know? Is this the first time you're revealing this? Yeah. Yeah, like in, they don't sound like poetry, but in terms of like the the beats and uh, how the how it presses it, I'm forgetting the exact like poetic or timbre timbre. I think, but yeah, they're they're both. <laughs> I actually, I actually think they do. Like that makes a lot of sense. Like that is the perfect answer, and it makes sense. I'm never going to be able <laughs> to unsee your reels or, or TikToks as poems now. Not like poems. Um, what what do people get wrong about short form video? Oh my gosh! I, like a lot of people, <laughs> it's crazy. They're like, oh, I, you know, too fast, not good. I would never, not interesting to me. And it's like, if it's not interesting to you, like, sorry. But I think a lot of people are definitely, you know, TikTok has its own like national security problems. But in terms of like that form of disseminating information, that's how the younger generation gets news, and like that's what they pay attention to. They're not going to read. In, you know, different vlog posts, like they're going to watch videos. So I think it's really important to like meet people where they need to be met. And oftentimes that's short form video platforms. Yeah. I also think it's a really effective, what I call curiosity trigger. You're basically uh-huh. just like putting like tiny morsels out there. And then like when, when you started a sub stack, I was like, oh, hell yeah, there's deeper thoughts. I'm, I'm going in, baby. Yeah. yeah. Um, in, in different dimensions to the brain. Yeah. Yeah. And how how have you enjoyed like going from like TikTok to YouTube um, and the different creative constraints? I like YouTube a lot because for whatever reason, it feels like more personal. Like people go to your page, if that makes sense. Versus TikTok, like they'll sometimes just be scrolling and they'll just be like a part of their journey versus like their final destination. So I really like that aspect of it. And then I like the longer form stuff because I can have more of my personality be there versus... The TikTok, it like has to be so concise that I don't get to like make a lot of jokes, um, theoretically. But yeah, so that that's the, the main thing is you get to be more of a person. So on uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy's podcast, Infinite, Infinite Loops, one of my favorites as well. Um, you were talking about what you're trying to build. You're calling it yeah. bread. Yeah. Um, what what is this? What does this mean? Is this a brand name basically for your continued one person shop or what are you aiming towards? Yeah, it's a financial education company. So kind of like Duolingo, but for finance. So creating different learning paths for people to understand the economy a little bit better, to understand stock market, to understand the bond market, um, and really, you know, meeting people where they need to be met in terms of learning styles, so having video, audio, text, all that stuff available but gamifying learning about finance. So Investopedia, but with a ribbon on top, yeah. Why bread? Money. It's another name for money. Oh, nice. That's <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. 
And also, like, it's there's a couple of other dimensions that um, I can't talk about right now, but, like, the bakery is, is part of it. Dough is a part of it, too. So, like, there's other arms oh, to that. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you wrote in one of your essays, money is not a moral compass. What do you mean by that? So, you know, money is going, it's incentivized by making more of it. And a lot of times making more money is not always morally the quote-unquote right path. Like, you can't follow the money and be led to the perfect solution most of the time. Um, people get swayed by money in ways that are immoral. So that's kind of what that means. Is like, you cannot have money be your guiding force if you can allow, if, if, if allowed, you cannot have money be a guiding force, I think. I love that. What do you need help with? Like, I, I think I have such a cool audience. They're so generous. And like, what do you need help with on your path? Like, what kind of support and encouragement do you need? Uh, okay, so it's like in terms of the content or just in terms of like being a person? Yeah, being a person. That's what yeah. this podcast is all about. Well, I'm... So I've been under quite a bit of stress recently and uh, have not been handling it very well. So like stress management tips are always well appreciated. Um, and then I think like, you know, self-confidence things, like understanding yourself a little bit better. And then um, if anybody has advice on how to rest and how to sleep, <laughs> would love that. Oh, wow. <laughs> but yeah, also like I, I think just as another fellow creator on this path, like this stuff is hard and um, it's so overwhelming sometimes and i i totally feel like what you've been feeling um as well so stay the course and i think your stuff matters um keep going thank you thank you where where can people find more or follow along in the fun yeah kylascanlin.com i'm on twitter at kylascan on instagram at kylascan on youtube kylascanlin my aptly named Substack is kyla.substack.com. And I have one of those names where if you Google me, uh, I'm one of the only people that shows up because it's a unique name. So, yeah. That's me too. Yeah, nice. It, it helps. <laughs> SEO this is great. <laughs> this is the real uh, value in yeah. um, today's economy. It is having a weird Googleable name. Googleable <laughs> name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> fantastic. Well, I've learned so much from you. Um, excited to see where you head on your own pathless path. Um, anything else you want to leave with us today, Kyla? No. Um, well, thanks for answering my DM, you know, a year and a half ago. It helped. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I was like, maybe you should stay and work longer. But <laughs> it, it was one of those things where it was like, it gave me something to think about and to write on the con list. Yeah. Awesome. Alrighty, glad you took the leap. Uh, thank you again, Kyla. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book. The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening.
Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.